So as we come to the Word of God tonight, uh, we'll take a moment uh, to approach the throne of grace, seek God's mercy, so that we can find grace to help in this time of need. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks that we have access to you. You're the God of the universe, the sovereign over all. You're the one who is omnipotent, and you have the power to carry out your plan. You have the ability to keep all of the promises that you have made, the covenants that you've made with Israel and the promises that you have made to us. And therefore, we can take comfort in this. I give thanks also that you have a purpose for each one of us, and you have equipped us to fulfill that purpose by giving us spiritual gifts through your indwelling spirit and through the word of God that informs us about everything that you have provided, as well as how we are to carry out this plan Tonight, Father, we do ask that you will show mercy and uh, raise up the pastor uh, give him relief from the pain, the suffering that he has so that he can uh, come back and uh, minister here. Father, we pray again for our brother David Dunn. He needs a heart. And uh, Father, I pray that you're going to supply a good heart for him good, strong heart, and uh, you do that soon. And we pray, Father, also that all the other things that he needs uh, by way of uh, blood or money, the other things necessary for him to get that transplant, you're going to provide that uh, in abundance. And, Father, we pray, too, about uh, things in the world. It seems that Evil is winning, and yet we know that's not the case. But there's certainly so much of it in the world today, and we're powerless to do anything about that. But we know that you can solve the problems. We pray for our loved ones in Ukraine, that you're going to protect them. But I pray especially that you're going to work through them, that you might be glorified in their lives as they give testimony of salvation by faith in Christ alone, and as they give testimony about the efficacy of your word, its sufficiency to meet every problem of life, to give peace and joy, even in time of suffering. And Father, we pray too for Israel. I pray, Father, you'll give them victory. I pray that you would bring uh, peace to that land by giving Israel victory over the ones who want to destroy her. So I pray that you'll give wisdom to those making decisions with regard to the military, the political machinations. I pray that you'll give courage to Netanyahu and others who are making decisions at this time about the prosecution of the war. And I pray that uh, you're going to be glorified through your people, through those in the body of Christ, that uh, 
because of the intensity of the conflict and the great dangers that uh, you use this as an opportunity for people to see that only in you is there salvation and only in your son is there salvation from sin. So I thank you that we have freedom in this nation. We can come together. We can openly proclaim your word, declare that Jesus is the only Savior, and that you are the only true God. So I pray that uh, as we open your word together tonight, that your Holy Spirit would help us to have a better understanding of your word, so we might have a greater appreciation for your grace, your provision, your plan for us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's important for us to be able to define terms. We always have to know that. And uh, tonight I just want to start out with a little bit of whimsy and give you a word. I'm sure that none of you is able to define this particular word. Uh, Snollygoster, anybody? Okay. Was that a hand? Oh, no, okay. All right, what's a snollygoster? This is a word that you need to know, and uh, once you learn the definition, I know that you will work this into your vocabulary many times a day because I know as you watch the news and you see people on the news and you might have names for these people that you would not want to share in church, for example. But you can say snollygoster. What is a snollygoster? Here is the definition. One, especially a politician who is guided by personal advantage rather than by consistent, respectable principles. Secondly, a politician who cares more for personal gain than serving the people. And so you can say, why, that sorry snollygoster. It seems that we have a whole gaggle of snollygosters. <laughs> I don't know what you call a group of snollygosters, but we'll call them a gaggle. All right. All right, tonight... Tonight I want to uh, talk about rocks, a little bit about rocks in the Bible, stones. There are a lot of stones in the Bible, a lot of rocks, and I got to thinking some time ago about uh, uh, rocks and uh, whether Jesus was a carpenter who worked with wood or was he a stonemason? Actually, this has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on his work as the Savior of the world. But I think that it can help us when we read the Bible to bring a, perhaps a fresh sense to his words and their meaning. We were in Bethlehem a number of years ago, and we went to this place. They said, this is Joseph's workshop. It was the most elegant workshop you have ever seen. I mean, they had this polished marble workbench and all sorts of things that uh, I don't think anybody 
in the time of Jesus could have afforded, except maybe King Herod. Okay, it was uh, it was really outstanding. But uh, we, as Western readers of the Bible, we automatically read the Bible and we think about our Western culture. A prime example of this is the movies that depict Jesus. And Jesus, so often in these movies, he is this Anglo-Saxon. He is white. In some cases, I've even seen blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. I don't think that's an accurate uh, presentation. Well, got part of his picture there. But you understand what I'm saying, that... uh, we have this idea that uh, Jesus looked like us, and he was probably uh, dark-skinned, olive-skinned, uh, maybe darker. Uh, we don't know how tall he was, what his uh, physique was like. Was he a little guy? Was he big guy with heavy muscles or uh, something else? We just don't know. Um, we do know that he was not outstanding as far as the way he looked, according to Isaiah 53, 2. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So he he was not outstanding as far as his overt appearance is concerned. Um, Also, when we read our Bibles, I think, too, we, we have this picture, for example, about uh, Christmas and what it had. We've seen millions of pictures, and we assume, well, this must be what it was, where they've got this stable and they've got a manger and uh, they've got this menagerie there. And we, well, they must have had donkeys, and then they get bring in camels and uh, who knows what else. Um, and so it's it's hard for us, I think, to think about the. Um, nativity without having these kinds of ideas in our head. And I think that we get this same idea when we think about Jesus and Joseph being carpenters. You know, you think about some guy and he's got this tool belt uh, around his waist and he's got a hammer there and a, and a saw and some other things. And uh, we, we think about, well, here's Jesus. He was a carpenter. And so we think about him with a, with a saw cutting a two-by-four in half. Or in some cases, we I've some of the classical pictures of Jesus as a boy, and it shows him making chairs and tables. So he was more of a furniture builder. But uh, is this really accurate? Uh, as yeah, we see a lot of pictures like that where Jesus. You know, he's working with his father, Joseph. He's learning a trade, which he undoubtedly did. But we have this idea of what a carpenter or a woodworker is. Now, when it comes to houses, now we can do some uh, spade work here and find out what were the houses like in, in the time of Jesus. And wood frame construction as we know it, the most common type of building here in America, this would have been virtually unknown in the ancient world and especially in Israel because there the houses were constructed of stone or sun-baked bricks 
And in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, they used volcanic stones called basalt. They're black stones. So this is uh, some pictures taken from Capernaum. There's the Sea of Galilee in the background. And the stones there, you can see they are black. Uh, They tend to be rather small. Basalt is volcanic material. And they are typically small, and they are very, uh, it's a fine grain, It's um, and they tend to be hard. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, houses made out of basalt. But when you get to central Israel, it's quite different. There they have limestone. Now, limestone uh, is a sedimentary rock. Basalt is igneous. In other words, one comes from uh, the volcano, the other is water-laid. And so in the central part of the country, they have limestone. So here's a picture of a limestone quarry. And the western wall, that's made out of limestone. Uh, So uh, this was the uh, type of building material that they used in constructing homes in Israel at that time. And if you go travel throughout central Israel today, limestone is the most prevalent uh, building material as far as the stones are concerned. So uh, there's a limestone house uh, in Nazareth. So the houses where Jesus lived were built mainly out of stones, and so it's likely then, instead of being a carpenter as we think of a carpenter, somebody who works in wood, uh, it's probably more likely that he was a builder with stones. Now, in 1977, Josh McDowell wrote a book titled More Than a Carpenter. And this is one of the most influential Christian books written uh, ever. uh, More than a hundred or, yeah, more than 30 million copies are in print in more than a hundred languages, over 120 languages. And in this book, McDowell gives testimony uh, that before he became a Christian, he had serious misgivings about Jesus and his claims to be the Savior, and his claims to have been resurrected. And uh, as a skeptic, he decided that he was going to disprove the resurrection, and he set out to do that. And he was very scholarly in his approach, and he began to uh, research the material. And he concluded, after all of this study, that Jesus indeed was more than a carpenter that he was the Son of God, as he claimed, and that he did die on the cross. He was buried, and he was resurrected, and he said, I could not disprove the resurrection. We have all of the evidence there, the highest quality of evidence, and so this led him to uh, put faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, this is an excellent book to give to unbelievers, to give to skeptics or even to new believers who have questions about their newfound faith because it answers a lot of questions that the unbeliever, the skeptic, or the new believer might have with regard to Jesus and how can I believe 
all of the things that are being taught about him. Uh, so we have this uh, book, and I think that just the title of it uh, helps to reinforce this idea that Jesus was a carpenter. And I've even seen bumper stickers that say this, my, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. I think it's kind of hokey, but uh, some people think, well, it, it, it's, that's their testimony. Uh, maybe trying to get people to talk to them about it. So um, we have this Western concept of carpenters that they build houses and they work with wood. And therefore, because Jesus was a carpenter, according to Mark 6.3, he must have built wooden houses. But if you go to Israel, you won't find any houses built of wood such as you find in Europe or America, just the stone structures. And perhaps this is because the wooden structures all decayed over the centuries and none of them survived, or it's more likely that they simply didn't build wood frame houses at all. So was Jesus a carpenter as we think of it, or was he perhaps a stonemason? And I think that it's probably likely that he was a stonemason rather than a wood carpenter. So we need to remember that the Bible was written in an ancient Israelite context. And I think, too, when we begin to look at some of the analogies that Jesus used when he taught, that the case is even stronger, that he worked as a craftsman, who built stone structures, uh, and that he was a skilled stonemason. Now, it's not to say that Jesus never worked with wood. Uh, he certainly would have done that if he was a, a craftsman, but uh, I think we need to rethink our image of Jesus uh, so that he's not running around with a tool belt with a Black & Decker saw in his hand. Um, all right. All uh, right. Now, what we find is this word tecton, tecton. From this, we get our word technician. Uh, we get tectonic. Even the word textile comes from this Greek word. And it's a, used, it's a term used for building or construction. Now, the Bible, in, in our Greek text does not say that Jesus was a carpenter, but it does say that he was a tectone. He was a craftsman. And so this is the word used for a craftsman, a worker, a construction worker. Now, in ancient Israel, we know that the trades were passed down from father to son, and this immediately explains why Jesus followed in the footsteps of his human father uh, to become a carpenter or a craftsman. Now, the only text that directly calls Jesus a carpenter comes from Mark 6.3, which says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So here we have this word carpenter. Or in Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son? 
So this would be a reference to Joseph. And so he is called the son of the carpenter. Um, now, in each of these verses, we have this word tecton. And uh, it can mean someone who works with wood, but uh, it can mean to work or to build with stone. Or the word can be used to designate a craftsman in general. So building with wood and stone would both be necessary for building in Galilee and in Judea. And the archaeological work that's been done in Nazareth shows that private homes were built of field stones and mud, and they had roofs uh, that were supported by poles and then overlaid with reeds and mud. And uh, now these two verses are the only places in the New Testament where uh, this word tecton is used. And so it's necessary to see how this word is used elsewhere to get its actual meaning. And its use in the Greek Old Testament sheds light on our discussion. So we want to take a look at the use of tecton in the Greek Old Testament. Now, the Greek Old Testament is known as the Septuagint, abbreviated LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70. Uh, This was the Greek translation of the Hebrew done in the 3rd century B.C. And the word tecton is used numerous times in the Greek translation here, and I think that it sheds great light on how it's uh, the meaning of it in the New Testament. So in uh, 2 Samuel 5.11, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Now when they, if you read the Greek text, this word carpenters is literally craftsmen, of wood. And the word masons is craftsmen of stone. So they have the word tecton. He's a tecton of wood. He's a tecton of stone. And so they make a distinction here. What kind of craftsmen are we speaking about? And... um, So we have builders with wood, builders with stone, and we see here that uh, in Isaiah 44, 13, the craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass. He makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. Well, the word here literally is the craftsman of wood. So we have a tecton, but he works with wood, and it's specified specifically. He is a craftsman of wood. And so uh, if it's talking about a carpenter, as we think of it, it always specifies that he is working with wood. Um, And so this is found in numerous texts, 
Uh, it's found in 2 Kings 12.12, 12, 1 Chronicles 14.1. And in each case, it specifies that the one who is the tecton is either working with stone or he is working with wood. This is also found in uh, our passage here. Obviously here, uh, it's somebody who works with wood. In 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Then they gave the money, which had been apportioned, into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters, and builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to masons and stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. Spider. So uh, we find the word carpenter in our English text, but the Septuagint literally has craftsmen in wood. And in verse 12, we find masons and stonecutters. Now, a stonemason is clearly someone who works exclusively with quarrying and dressing stones for urban construction projects. Uh, this is not talking about building of rural houses with field stones. So uh, also... Uh, we find in Second Chronicles 24.12 and Ezra 3.7 where the term mason is uh, again used for someone who works with stones specifically. Um, Also, we find sometimes the word tecton is used and it doesn't say with stone or with wood, and it's simply translated craftsman. So we find it this way in Zechariah 1.20. The Lord showed me four craftsmen. So it's, uh, we, we can understand this term, uh, and it doesn't specify in what area they are a craftsman. Uh, and finally, also... Uh, we find in Jeremiah 24.1 and 29.2 uh, another term for the craftsman. So this is just a very quick survey, and we can conclude that tecton, without a qualifying term for wood, has the general meaning of a craftsman. Um, but when tecton and word wood appear together, then carpenter is clearly to be understood. But if the word wood does not occur in a verse, it's probably used to indicate a craftsman in general. Uh, so when Jesus is called a tecton, the word wood does not follow. And therefore, Jesus must have been a craftsman. He would have been a builder in general, general contractor, if you will, but Stones would be included, but there's no specific connection to him being a woodworker, as we would think of a carpenter. So let's look at some verses where uh, 
Jesus talks about stones. He doesn't say much about wood. In fact, there's only one passage where he's really going to talk about wood, where he mentions it. But there are a lot of places where he talks about stones used by way of analogy or as a metaphor. And Jesus uses building metaphors. Uh, So we'll look at uh, some of the most prominent verses found in the Gospels where Jesus talks about building with stones. All right, in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? Obviously a reference to the Old Testament. That was the only Scripture in existence when Jesus was here. The stone. Now, there are numerous words for stone found in the Greek text. This one is lithos. Lithos, you've probably heard of lithography, printing with stone, a process for making copies, prints, or monolith, one stone, something that is monolithic. It's not comprised of parts. It's just all together, one piece. So that's this word uh, that we find here. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, or literally, the word stone is not uh, repeated here. It simply says, this became the head of the corner. Well, we understand that it is the cornerstone, but they called it the head of the corner. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our sight. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22. So Jesus quotes from this psalm, and he talks about a stone which is rejected by the builders. The builders here are the leaders in Israel during the time of Christ when he came and presented himself as their Messiah, but they have rejected him. So here he says the stone has been rejected by the builders, but it has become the head of the corner. Now what is the head of the corner? Well, it was the major stone It went at the corner of a building. It was large. Uh, They were often quite massive, uh, and they would be very important because they had to be set in place at the right uh, position, and then the house is going to be built uh, with this as the reference point. And so if you don't have this in the right place, then you're going to have a problem. So you don't put this cornerstone in the middle of the wall, you put it at the corner, and then you build out from that place. So the first part of any house wall to be laid was the cornerstone. And so it was large, and it held in place courses of smaller stones so that the weight of the stones is not going to uh, be able to push away this stone. It has to be strong, heavy enough uh, so that it can stand up against the 
pressure that's put on it by the other stones in the wall. And so uh, not only is Jesus speaking about a building stone, the lithos, but also uh, he uses the term for a builder here. And uh, also we find of importance in this context in, in, the, in verse 44, Jesus also talks about this stone and he says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now here he's talking about this head of the cornerstone. And this stone, it's going to be large in size, and if you fall on it, it can you can really get hurt. But if it falls on you, then you are dust. Okay, you're done. So uh, Jesus talks about the large cornerstone here. So <clears throat> uh, we understand then he's making reference to what he is going to be in reference to the nation of Israel. Now we come to Matthew chapter 7, and we have a very familiar parable that Jesus taught. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now here we have a different word for rock. This is one that you are undoubtedly acquainted with. It's the Greek word Petra. Some of you have seen the city of Petra. Some of you may have been there or you've seen pictures of it. Well, it means rock. And Jesus also is going to use this word uh, when he... uh, talks to Peter and gives him the name Petros. This is Petra. Now, here Jesus is talking about building a house. And he exhibits here his knowledge of proper building uh, protocols. And so we have here a parable of two houses. One is built on sand. One is built on rock. And he's talking about something that all competent builders would know. So here we have a wise man, and he built his house upon the rock. Okay, so um, I don't have the rest of the verse. Ah, sorry. All right, it's all right. We'll find it. Um In order to build on the rock, this Petra, you have to dig to get it. And so we can see this in the parallel um, passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 48 and 49. The one who listens to the words of Jesus is like a man building a house, and notice he dug deep and laid a foundation The word foundation here, themelios, uh, that means a a large rock that's used for the foundation. This is not the cornerstone, but these are foundation uh, stones, large stones that would be used. 
Now, before you lay the foundation, you have to dig down to the Petra. So it says he laid a foundation, Thamelios, upon the Petra, upon the rock, and he had to dig down to get it. And when a flood arose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, without any themelios. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So now he's saying here, you dig down to the bedrock. You dig down to the Petra, and uh, then you lay the foundation stones on top of that. And so... Lithos, that word we saw earlier, is a simple building stone, but Petra, ah, that's bedrock. So what we have in this passage, the parable, uh, the meaning is obvious. The rock, what is the rock? Don't say Jesus, okay? The rock is hearing the word and doing it. That's the foundation, Not just hearing it, but hearing it and doing it. Because you can hear it and not do it, and then you've built your house on the sand. So there were people who would come, and instead of digging down to the Petra, the bedrock, they would simply start building their house right on the ground. And they could have the cornerstone, and they could put up the walls and everything, but then when the flood came, it would just go right underneath those stones and the whole thing would collapse. But if you built upon the bedrock, then you have something that will withstand the storms. So in that part of the world, the soil is rather shallow, 12, 18 inches on average. And so it was important not only to dig the foundation trench to bedrock, but also to lay the heavy foundation stones on the bedrock. And so if a person just built on the topsoil or even laid smaller stones and clay mortar as a foundation, then when the rains came, it would just go underneath and... uh, wash everything away, and the house would collapse. So Jesus is noting the important building practice of uh, going down to the bedrock, using your heaviest stones at the foundation level and on the corners. And so uh, Jesus obviously knew about how to build here. Now, we come to Matthew sixteen eighteen, another very well-known verse. And I also say to you that you are Peter... Petros, but upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Now, I had always heard, well, Petros is this little rock, and uh, the Petra is a great big rock, and so I always had this picture of, okay, you're going to build this up on this high rock. But I think that the Petra here is bedrock. It's not a big stone, but rather it's bedrock. It's something that is immovable. 
something that is absolutely solid and secure. So um, there's a lot of debate about uh, what it means. I will build my house on the Petra. Uh, Obviously, it's talking about being built upon the bedrock, and that's Jesus. That's not Peter who would be the smaller stone. Um, And this is also the term that's based on the confession found in Matthew 16, 16 of who Jesus is, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So it's on that foundation, that's the bedrock, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So Jesus did not use the lethos, smaller stones, nor did he use the foundation stones, but rather he purposely chose to use the term petra, which is bedrock, the permanent, unmovable stone. Now, we come to the one place where Jesus did use the term for wood. It's the only place I know of where he talked about wood. Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5, uh, parallel found in Luke 6. He says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, we have two words here. We have the the speck and the log. You're... You may have different terms uh, in your translation. But what are we talking about here with the log and with the speck? Now, this is a picture of uh, a roof as they were often built in uh, Israel at that time. Uh, the, the word for a log can be uh, a, a beam Perhaps it was rough-hewn, or sometimes they uh, just used the log itself. Uh, And most of the roofs in the ancient world in Israel were flat roofs constructed with this kind of construction where they had the beams that would go across the top of the walls, and then they made up this mixture uh, of stalks that could be... um, various types of grain or leaves that were used, and then they also would put mud uh, over tops of these things. And so um, you've got the beams, and then it would be covered over, and the material there could be corn or straw um, and other things. And so, so these things were put together, uh, they kind of made a clay base and um, put these things up. Now, inside the house, you could see this kind of construction. If you looked up at the ceiling, then you would see the logs. 
and you would also see the things that might fall out. You can imagine if you've got little stalks and little pieces of grass and that sort of thing that's used in the ceiling. So you're going to look up at the ceiling and you may well get a speck in your eye. So that's the word that he uses here. So he's saying, okay, your brother has a little speck in his eye. It's some little thing that fell out of the air and that's in his eye. And he said, and so you're being critical of him because he has that speck in his eye. He said, what you don't realize is you've got this big log in your own. Of course, this is gross hyperbole, but it makes the point very clearly uh, to us here. But um, this is the only place I know of where Jesus makes any reference to wood uh, at all as far as as we could see, it would be related to to building. All right, in Matthew 13, he was going out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones, lithos. These are the smaller stones. And what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. So here the disciples are directing Jesus' attention toward the great buildings and the stones that were used on the Temple Mount, um, constructed during the time of Herod the Great. And uh, this might seem like a passing comment, but uh, why would the disciples be eager to point out the construction techniques of the temple and its surrounding area? Why would they even point that out to Jesus? It may have had to do with the fact that Jesus himself was a builder with stones. And Jesus could appreciate the fine construction techniques. Uh, Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask for a loaf will give him a stone? Same word, lethos. Um, So... Uh, This isn't directly related to building, but it does serve to remind us how Jesus thought and the analogies that he made. Uh, It may also reflect the reality that Jesus handled stones on a daily basis as a builder. And stones, especially the smaller basalt type of stones, uh, would resemble a rounded loaf of baked bread. So was Jesus a carpenter? Well, I think he was a craftsman, a builder of houses, but probably not a wood shop carpenter as we would think of it. Now, this doesn't make a bit of difference as far as what Jesus accomplished in providing our salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with his ministry. It's just a a little note. But uh, I just uh, found it interesting how these words were used. In Isaiah 28:16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, Themelios, a stone, Lethos, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And there the word Themelios is repeated. He that believeth shall not make haste. If we 
look at the translation from the Septuagint. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion the foundations, a stone, costly, choice, a highly regarded cornerstone for its foundations. And the one believing in him will not be ashamed. So this is spoken by the Lord in response to his people's lack of faith in him. This is from the book of Isaiah. And in this book, the people are tempted to go down to Egypt for help. They're looking to other nations to help them. And they're going to make a covenant with other foreign nations to get them out of trouble. And God is saying, hello, I already made a covenant with you. You don't need any other covenants. I made a covenant with you. I'm going to keep my covenant and I'm going to provide everything you need. What are you doing going to these other people? You won't listen. I sent you my messenger. I sent you my prophets. I have given you everything and you don't want to listen. And so God is saying here, I have provided for you. And God is laying a firm foundation in Jerusalem that they can build upon, that they should build upon. And so this huge stone referenced here was tested. That is, it was measured. Everything was right. It was planted securely. And it provides the basis for security. So ancient cornerstones, the largest, most important stone in the foundation of a building. And the whole building now is going to be oriented according to that uh, foundation. And it's going to support the major portion of the superstructure. So the stone that's referenced here is the Messiah. And this is found in uh, numerous places. Uh, in Psalm 118, verse 22, Zechariah 3, 9. Uh, it's found in a number of places, also quoted in the New Testament. And so in Isaiah 8, 14, it says of Messiah, he will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the stone can be the foundation, and you can build on it, or the stone is going to destroy you. You get to choose. So the stone can work for you, or it can work against you. And we find stone uh, used for God um, in... A number of places. This is a very interesting study as well. Uh, God as a rock. In Genesis 49, 24, he is called the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel. Second Samuel 22, 2, and he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. 
That's security. That's stability. Psalm 69.2, He only is my rock and my deliverance, my salvation. He's my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Or Psalm 92.15, To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32.4, He's the rock. His work is perfect. All of his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. So God is our rock, and therefore we can have confidence. All right, um, one of the last things recorded about Jesus at his burial is the fact that he was laid in a tomb cut out of rock, Petra. Interesting that uh, they use that word for the tomb. And then a huge stone, a lithos, was placed over its opening. But aren't we glad that neither the Petra nor the lithos could hold him? He could roll it back. He could walk out. So um, what can we see from this? So what? To me, this was just kind of a fun little study. Uh, Sometimes you start reading, you start looking at something, and it leads you to another thing, and it leads you to another, and you chase a bunch of rabbits. uh, But yet, as you do this often, you, you come to to discover some truths and you and you find also that there is confirmation about other things that you have learned so you learn about the fact that uh, we can depend on God but now we see in all of these different uh, analogies and metaphors that we have something that is dependable something that is immovable and so David wrote and he said he has set me high on a rock, and now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me. So we have this rock. He's our foundation. He is our sure uh, rock, and he is the basis for our salvation. So uh, we have great stability and great promise. Let's pray. I give thanks, Father, that we have a rock. Jesus is the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. He is the rock of our security. He is the rock of our rest. He is the basis for our confidence in this life. And so uh, many storms in life may come, but if we've built our house upon the rock of hearing his words and obeying them, The storms will not destroy us. And I thank you that we have this bedrock. We have this security. Though we have a lot of troubling things in this world, and uh, they might make us fearful, and uh, we don't know what's going to come. And uh, so we might have times when uh, we're doubting. But I pray that because we know that Jesus is the rock, And you have laid that sure foundation stone that we need not fear whatever comes. So I pray that when things are tough, times are difficult, uh, 
that we're going to remember that we have that which cannot be moved and that we're going to stand firm in the day of trouble. So I pray that uh, we might be encouraged by these words. I pray now that you'll give us mercy as we go to our homes, give us safe journeys, and give us grace that we can come again to worship together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.